invite you to turn to Acts chapter 20. The context is Paul returning toward Jerusalem after the third of his missionary journeys. And while passing near Ephesus, uh, calling for the elders of that city so that he might uh, remind them of his ministry there and exhort them about the days to come. We'll pick up the text at uh, Acts 20, verse 17, and read to verse 21. And from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church, when they came to them, to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you all the time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which befell me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance to God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is a very fast-moving account of how the church, the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire during those first 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. But every now and then, Luke, who wrote this book, stops and he uh, gives us a sermon that somebody preached. And so really the book of Acts does two things for us. At least it does two things for me. I think it's meant to do these two things. It inspires us with a fast-moving, exciting, successful account of how the kingdom is advancing throughout the world from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then on to the reaches of the kingdom. And it also stops long enough to get into some sermons that are intended, I think, to tell us what the theology and the preaching and the leadership behind that advance looked like. We've got one of those here in Acts chapter 20, one of those pauses to look at what is causing this amazing advance of the kingdom. I want to step back and, and give you a little historical Setting. So let's go back to chapter 18, verse 23. And we'll just walk right up to where we're going to start the message this morning uh, of exposition. In Acts 18, 23, he leaves Antioch, his home base, for the third time now, on the third missionary journey. He heads north up through Galatia and Phrygia, that's eastern Turkey, Today, where he went on his first missionary journey, saying he's going to strengthen the disciples now that he made back then or have been made as a result of his mission. You get to chapter 19, verse 1, and he arrives in Ephesus, across the land there. Ephesus is over on the Aegean Sea. Verse 8 says he spends three months arguing in the synagogue. That's amazing. He usually doesn't last more than a week in the synagogue before he's kicked out. Three months he lasts in the Jewish synagogue dealing with the Jewish community, trying to persuade them that Christ is the king. He's arrived. The kingdom has come. Jesus is the one promised. Believe. And after three months, it says the opposition became so great that he had to withdraw. He set up his teaching now for two years. Two years every day he taught in the hall of Tyrannus. It'd be like renting a hall downtown Minneapolis here. Where there's no church at all. And every day, putting a sign out, religion. Going to talk today. And, and he talked. 
And for two years he did that. And his evangelism was so effective that if you read through chapter 19, you're just stunned at the impact this one man had on this city. Just look at a few of these things. His healing power was remarkable. God healed the sick through the apostle. People bring handkerchiefs and just touch him, take him away, and people would get healed. His assault on the occult, the magic arts of that city, was so significant, you see down later in the chapter, that the people brought books and burned them one day, these magic books, and they were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a big book burning, a big impact on the occult community of Ephesus. The assault of the kingdom was working. There was victory. You think that can happen today? We get in the mindset that, well, it's all over. It's the end of the age. It's only bad news downhill from here on. Why can't there be an Ephesus experience in Minneapolis? If the gospel is held forth the way Paul held it forth. 800 churches in this city. And not only that, the silversmiths who made these little shrines to Artemis and sold them. People stopped buying them. At least not as many were buying them. And so they called all the silversmiths together and says, Look, we're in trouble. Something's going on here and our business is going to be ruined. And not only that, the great temple of Artemis here in Ephesus could come into disrepute. And everything could go awry in this city. I mean, his enemies saw there was trouble in this one rascal from out of town. Paul. Two years worth. And he was turning the city on its head. So they make a riot. He almost gets killed. And he leaves town. After two years and three months. Or a little more probably. Because in chapter 20 verse 31 he says he spent three years in Ephesus. He heads north up through uh, Troas. Across the isthmus there to to uh, uh, Macedonia. Down through Macedonia to Greece. And spends the winter three months in Corinth. Uh, says that in chapter 20, verse 3, if you're following with me. Chapter 20, verse 3, three months now, he's in Corinth, probably the winter of 55, 56 A.D. Probably wrote Romans while he was there in those three months. When he's done, he wants to cross over the little strip of water there to Ephesus, and there's a plot to kill him. This man lived in constant danger of being killed. Could you minister like that? I mean... Plots to kill you, not just people who don't like you. Telephone calls. I got a phone call seven years one Easter morning. A guy said, your wife is dead and hung up. Can you imagine that? Changed my Easter Sunday morning, I'll tell you. He lived with that every day. He heads back north. Now, he doesn't quit. He just takes a different route. He heads north up through Macedonia, crossed over to Troas. Great thing happens there. He's saying goodbye to everybody because he's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows this is it. Nobody again. Something's going to happen in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit testifies it's going to be persecuted in every city, and there's just uh, a foreboding. He's never coming back, and he didn't. He stops in Troas, gathers everybody together in an upper room, a lot of torches, three stories up, and he talks all night long. And poor 
Eutychus goes to sleep in the window and falls out, kills himself on the ground below. And Paul, with those mighty apostolic arms, talk about power. He goes down, he picks this boy up, and the life is in him again. And then he keeps going, and he passes Ephesus. Now, why did he do that? This church where he spent three years, he passes Ephesus. Chapter 20, verse 16, says the reason that he passes Ephesus in the boat is because he is in a hurry to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. It just makes me wonder whether Pentecost was already a great Christian celebration. I don't know whether it was or not, but it's uh, been about 20 years or so since that great first outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and I'll bet in Jerusalem, every time that anniversary rolled around, those apostles just let loose with the celebration of the coming of the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost, Paul wanted to be there for some reason for this great day of Pentecost. It was still a Jewish holiday, of course, but it was also now, no doubt, a Christian holiday. And so he passed Ephesus, but 20 miles south, he says to the captain, put in at Miletus. Evidently, he's in charge. I don't know how it says in verse 16. He's the one who made the decision. But he's a big, big uh, man on this uh, boat. Put in at Miletus, about 20 miles south of Ephesus. And when he puts in, he sends a messenger back up to Ephesus and gets the elders of the church to come down to talk to them. Now, why all this trouble? Just think of it now. He's in a hurry. He skips Ephesus, evidently feeling, I can't handle the whole church. It took him as much time. Because he, he put in at Miletus, he could have put in at Ephesus, except the difference is he only took the elders. There are probably a thousand believers at Ephesus, maybe more. And he said, I can't handle it. It'll take me too long. I'll get so involved with those people. It'll be so heart-wrenching for me to say goodbye to every one of those people. I can't take the time to do it. But I, I have got to talk to the elders. Now, this is a lesson to me. I think you could put the lesson like this. I can't pass up the elders because as the elders go, so goes the church. Luke agreed with him, I believe, because Luke, knowing he had picked Luke up up at Asos. You can tell that because he starts writing we, 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 we. Before that, it was you, 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 you. He picked Luke up at Asos. Luke is with him here. He wrote this book. He's with him in Miletus. And having heard what Paul says, he says, I got I to put that in my book. That speech has got to go in my book because that's important. That's important for the churches to see the kind of eldership Paul believes the church needs. When he can't talk to the whole church, he talks to the elders. This is what the elders need to hear. So what I want to do this morning then is look with you at uh, just one verse. We'll finish the two other verses, 20 and 21 tonight. We'll look at verse 19 this morning and take the next two verses tonight. I have a long list of characteristics of what should mark the eldership of the church, or more specifically, what kind of service makes a church great, makes a church thrive. And at Bethlehem, I suppose, as you listen to this, you should, there's several ways to listen. If you're an elder, and I, I take our deacons to be elders, and our pastoral staff to be elders. 
We may call them that someday, but that's what they are, biblically speaking. And I take it that since Hebrews 13:7 says to the whole congregation, imitate your leaders. That when I talk this morning, or Paul talks this morning to elders, everybody should be listening. First, to pray this reality into your leaders. Me, the pastoral staff, your deacons, pray these things into your leaders. Demand them of your leaders. Don't be content until you've got this kind of leadership. And second, since you are to imitate in measure your leaders... Pray it for yourself. Strive for this for yourself. All right. Verse 19 says, here he is pouring out his heart the last time to these beloved friends. You yourselves know how I lived among you all the time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord. Now, let's stop there and take this phrase, serving the Lord. It's an interesting phrase. It sounds simple enough, serving the Lord, but divide it in half and think about it. Let's take the word serving and then the Lord. What do you think of when you think of the word serving? Comes to my mind is doing what you're told. You've got a master and you're a servant, you do what you're told. I think of submissiveness, I think of compliance, I think of lowliness, I think of obedience. All that comes to my mind. Then I turn over here to this phrase, the Lord, not a Lord among many Ephesian lords, not my Lord that I cherish and you can cherish your Lord, but the one and only universal Lord over creation. And what do you think of when you think of that? I think of authority, power, control, majesty. Now, you put these two together. Serving the Lord. It is not easy to guess what comes up from the mingling of those two things. One set of characteristic of Christian leadership flows from all the implications of service. Another set of implications of leadership come from all the implications of the Lord. For example, If a servant, lowly, humble, submissive, compliant, obedient, hears the Lord say, do this and say this to the people, he says it with amazing confidence and authority. Because it came from the Lord. And so there start to emerge characteristics in this lowly, humble, compliant Servant strengths and and authority and confidence that sometimes don't seem to fit together with the sense of lowly, humble, submissive, compliant. And so what I'm saying is here, there is a Christian leadership is a strange thing. Therefore, I'm very suspicious of myself and other people who go to the Bible Pick it up, find a theme, say justice or peace or equality or servanthood and say, aha, that's what the Bible teaches. And then, boom, they close it 
and start talking about it. As though what they say has biblical authority. Because the Bible touches on the theme. Does that bother you? Ooh, I just can't stand it when people do that. They speak about a theme and say what they're saying is biblical because the theme is biblical. Bible is a book of justice and therefore boom, 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 boom. This is what you ought to do in society. I said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's find out what the Bible says about justice. Or the Bible says about servanthood. So the point I'm making is this. If we come to this text, you shouldn't be desirous that I would say, there it is, serving the Lord is a biblical concept. The Lord serving. So shut the Bible, let's talk about it now. Let's all share ideas about what serving the Lord means. That's totally wrong. What we ought to do is keep the Bible open. You got it open? You keep the Bible open and you find 11 defining features in these verses. Three this morning and Lord willing, eight tonight in 30 minutes tonight. So that's a principle I'm laying out for you about how I handle the scriptures and try to handle my life as imperfectly as I may go about it. That's what I expect you to expect from me. He better not just tell us a theme and then shut the Bible and start talking about it, telling stories about it, talking about his experience. No way. The people of God are misled and uninspired, unequipped by that kind of talk. If he says there's a theme of service here, let him tell us what the Bible says about the theme of service. All right. So that's what we're going to try to do. I have, I think, um, three things that I can show you from the text characterize an elder who is serving the Lord biblically. Number one, and I see what time it is here. And this is what time it was in the last service, too, so I'm going to step on it here uh, but we will take ten more minutes at least, so don't get fidgety. Verse 19. Number one, serving the Lord means lowliness. Serving the Lord with all humility, or another word for that is lowliness. And let me tell you two things, and I'm drawing these out of other texts where Paul implies these things, about this word lowliness. It means on the vertical scale, a spirit of utter abandon and yieldedness to God who owns me and can do with me whatever he wants. And I like it that way. Lowliness is says God owns me. He made me. He bought me with Jesus' blood. I'm his. I'm not my own. He can dispose of me as, as he likes. That's okay. That's lowliness toward God. Horizontally. Between you and me, lowliness means a spirit of feeling indebted to everybody. Or let me put it this way. I think it will commend itself more easily. It's the opposite of feeling everybody owes you something. They owe me time. They owe me an ear. They owe me strokes. They owe me thanks. They owe me this, 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 this. Owe me, owe me, owe me. That's the opposite of lowliness and humility. 
I get some of this from first uh, from Romans 1:15, where Paul says, "I am a debtor to barbarians and Greeks, educated and uneducated." He didn't even know these people, and he owes them something. It's the exact opposite of rights. I've got these rights. Oh, how we are a rights-oriented people today. You owe me. I've got this right. She can't talk to me that way. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, don't get me wrong. There are such a thing as rights. There is such a thing as being owed something. An employer owes, I mean, an employee owes an employer something. A child owes a parent something. A wife owes a husband and a husband owes a wife something. Here's what I'm saying, though. To the degree that you are emotionally driven by the sense of what people owe you, you're not lowly. You're not humble. But to the sense that you feel emotionally driven by the grace of God to how much you owe the world because of what you've been shown of God, to that degree, you have what I think Paul means by humility and lowliness. So vertically, utterly Abandoned to God to do with you as he pleased. Horizontally driven far more by an emotional impulse of feeling like you owe others life and love and hope and faith than that they owe you things. That's the first mark of leadership. Humility toward God and man. Second, just keep reading in verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. So the second thing that marks a servant of the Lord who is biblical in his leadership is tears. Now, what causes tears? I make a nice list here. I thought of uh, physical pain causes tears. Sometimes it just hurts so bad you don't even you can't stop them. The tears just flow. Another thing that causes tears is um, heart wrenching loss. We think of tears when we lose somebody or job. We lose something that was precious to us. Or uh, you cry when there is the last straw of frustration. You know, ten things went wrong this morning, and I came to eat, and I opened the cupboard, and it hit me in the head. That was it. It was over. You just sit down at the kitchen table and bawl. And I'm not just talking about women from experience can be a clutch, you know. Can't take anymore. Or it can be joy, can't it? Now, Paul here doesn't say that, he doesn't say why he cried so much. He does say a little bit. Down in verse 31, you see that? In verse 31, he says, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That was the tear of, of uh, yearning for the faith and holiness of whoever he was admonishing. You ever long for something so bad you cry over it? Long for something, some change in somebody, some belief in an unbeliever, just long so much that they would listen to you when you talk, that tears come? That's what was happening in verse 31. But he doesn't say what he was crying about in verse 19. So here's the lesson I want to draw. I want to draw a big general one out of verse 19. It goes like this. Um, if you are a leader, and I think probably this should apply to everybody, 
you ought to be so intensely involved in the needs of other people that you cry about it. I think that's implied in verse 19, that a good elder, a good elder, a good leader will be involved enough in the struggles of his people for truth and holiness and faith and hope and freedom and wholeness that when they struggle, he struggles, and when they cry, he cries. I'm a a Christian hedonist, all right? Unabashed, unrepentant Christian hedonist, H-E-D-O-N-I-S-T. And I want to affirm that unashamedly, hadn't drawn anything back from what's written in Desiring God so that you won't think that what I'm about to say is a retraction of it and that I'm bellyaching that I have the greatest job in the world. But from the year 1964, when I graduated from high school, Wade Hampton High School, Greenville, South Carolina, to 1980, when I became a teaching elder, use the biblical phrase, a pastor, in this church, 16 years, I think I cried less than five times. I can only remember two of them. I'm just just trying to round it up. <laughs> less than five times. I don't cry easy. But since 1980, I cry a lot. Now, there are two ways to look at that. Um, one is that's a terrible indictment of the previous 16 years. That's the way I feel about it. That's an indictment of the previous 16 years. I wasn't involved with people's needs close enough that their hurt hurt me. But it's also a statement about the price of eldership. It's a lot of people, a lot of needs, a lot of stresses, a lot of tugs that you, uh, if you're a college teacher, you don't have to worry about. Verse 31, I just want to point out here that I am not an Apostle Paul yet, all right? Unless you get the wrong idea. Verse 31 says, he admonished with tears day and night. Do you realize what that means? That for two years and three months he cried all the time. I don't cry all the time. All right? I don't cry day and night. So I, I think the Lord has some growing, some strengthening, some tenderizing to do with this elder. So that's number two. Tears are the mark of a faithful Elder, because, not because he's an emotional basket case, but because he's involved, tangled up in lives, empathetic with the questing and the hurting of the unbeliever and the believer near him. Finally, serving the Lord means trials. Just read the rest of verse 19. Uh, Now, serving the Lord with all lowliness and with tears and with trials. See, RSV now, I know your NIVs 
paraphrase it differently, and they don't do a good job of it either, I'm afraid. With trials which befell me through the plots of the Jews. Trials which befell me through the plots of the Jews. I have no idea where that word although comes from in the NIV. That is out of the blue and wholly unwarranted and misleading. Scratch it out. Trials which befell me through the plots of the Jews. Now, why does Paul tell them about his own trials? I mean, they're gone. They're past. What they got to do with these elders? The answer is real simple. They're going to have them, too. I saw something in getting ready for this message I hadn't noticed before. Do you remember? Don't look this up. We don't have time. Over in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.32, it says, um, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Remember that little line in 1 Corinthians 15.32? Humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. And there's a big argument about, is that literal lions or is that a figurative uh, enemies? I think it's figurative, and one of the reasons I do now is because I think you can get a glimpse of what he means by looking at verse 29 of this chapter. Acts 20, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. In other words, Paul fought with beasts at Ephesus. The elders are going to have to fight with beasts, wolves at Ephesus. I had never noticed that connection before. Jesus, you remember, said, behold, I send you out as sheep midst wolves. There are people outside the church And the prediction here is that sometimes they rise up on the board of elders who, when they hear the absolute claims of Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven and as one having the right to dictate how we live, get so angry they become like animals. So angry that any elder could say that Jesus said that to them. And become like wolves and start then, what's the word, perverting, twisting the words of the other elders and the words of the tradition of the apostles and trying to lure away the flock and eat them alive and destroy the church. That's the danger that's held out here. And that is a trial. The trial came from the Jews. Do you hear the poignancy of that? He was a Jew. This is an anti-Semitism here when he says the plots of the Jews. It was Jew against Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. All the twelve were Jews. And it was Jews couldn't agree. And Paul said, they're my kinsmen according to the flesh. It was a very great trial. So let me close with this summary. Serving the Lord faithfully as a leader means Humility, tears, trials. 
It means lowliness. Everyone this morning, I commend to you, yield yourself wholly to God as the one who made you and bought you and has absolute rights over your life. Just settle it in your mind. I am his and he is mine. He can do with me as he please. Anywhere, anytime, he is God. And then with each other, just forsake once and for all a rights orientation in your life and have a debtor's orientation. I owe the world everything because of what he's done for me. That's lowliness. Secondly, tears. If you're crying inside this morning, you've got good company. Paul wept every day of his life, it seems like. If you're not crying and you haven't cried for a long, long time, I've got two suggestions. Number one, ask yourself, am I involved with people's needs as closely as I should be? Or does my life basically circulate around a pretty comfortable little work schedule, home schedule, work schedule, home schedule, work? Just a breeze, a little TV in the evening, a little lunchtime, a little sun in the spring, a little comfort, 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 comfort. No tears at all for anybody. Then I would just suggest break out, for God's sake. Break out into the lives of needy people. They're all over the place. The other suggestion I have is that uh, maybe you're already involved with people, but you just don't feel the awesome things that are at stake that bring tears when you think about it. Finally, to those of you who are under trial right now of any kind, whether this kind or another kind, here's my closing word. It comes from James. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you fall into various Trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its uh, complete effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's an awesome Copernican revolution of mentality when you are being plotted against to say, oh, God, thank you for what that's going to do to me.